The meeting of two minds on the Badger Shelf. We'll set the world to rights and try to find more Badger puns. Welcome to the Badger Shelf. Hello and welcome to the Badger Shelf. I do believe this is episode six, rip-roaring past uh, number five on our way to double figures. Who'd have thunk it? Our many uh, naysayers certainly wouldn't have. Calls of, where's the episode? And uh, punctuality, etc, etc, ring in our ears from certain degraders of the podcast. Not throwing shade at any particular fans in particular, Ken. <laughs> they know who they are. Ken knows who he is. He does, he does. He does like to, um, I think it's because he's such a super fan of our work. He just wants more. He's an addict. He is. Oh, are we enablers? That is the question. No, we're pushers. <laughs> we're the pusher man. And we got to give him that sweet, sweet satisfaction. We're the supply. So, uh, one like years from now, I'll be like rich off Ken's podcast addiction. I'll be sitting in my mansion with my tires. <laughs> this is why we set out. Sitting on a gold throne, snorting sound bites. <laughs> you never get high on your own supply. This is it. Never try to fuck me, Andy. Never try to fuck me. That's like the exact opposite of what you usually tell me. <laughs> Breaking character for that one there. <laughs> So yes, episode... It is episode six, isn't it? It is episode six, you are quite correct. I've done no research, I've done no research. Although this time, I have done a bit of research. I was just saying before this kicked off, this is probably the most preparation for an episode that I have ever done. I normally wing it. Yes, no, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of the same, to be honest. And uh, this is also the most preparation that I have done. But I actually had written seven words down before starting this. It's unheard of. Never before seen levels of effort. The likes of which the world has never seen the likes of which. <laughs> Such was the custom at the time. Um, the reason, I think, for us putting so much levels of uh, effort into this and the production, and it's all going very well, you see. Um, the reason we've put so much work into prep is because we asked some of our lovely listeners out there um, who we have you know, the contact details of and can annoy in real life uh, for some ideas because we'd got five episodes in and ran out of um, steam once again. So our very happy Badger buddies gave us some ideas. And this episode is a horrifying um, amalgamation of two of these ideas because, you know, we need lots of stuff to talk about or we go off the rails. So talking talking about Ken... He uh, suggested um, best and worst adaptations of books to movies, which is a fantastic subject in itself. But to augment that and give it a little extra sugar, we've taken our lovely friend James's idea, what would you make a film, TV show, novel about? And give us a little pitch, etc., etc. So if we could adapt something, what would we make? Which is an interesting addition to this. And so those two boys have their own little podcast, not podcast, they stream things on Twitch at uh, Cobalt Gaming. And of course, Ken goes by Ken the Zombie, Kent he Zombie, Ken the Zombie. And uh, hopefully they appreciate this little shout out. 
Give us your dollar, boys. Woo! But yes, we've got a lovely, a lovely main course from Ken. A lovely dessert from James. And also, we did have a third suggestion we were going to discuss. The appetizer from Dave, who you may remember from various horrific mockery in previous episodes. Enemy number one. And he has brought up probably the most controversial topic for enjoyers of media. Films of video games and games of films. Oh, oh, a horrible, horrible mess. So we'll use we'll use Dave's aggravating topic as a as a warm up before we get into the the <laughs> nitty gritty of deciding what is the best and worst of adaptations. We, it's important to get riled up, stretch the old muscles before we get into the good stuff. You remember what muscles are, don't you, Eddie? I I once thought I did before we were trapped inside, locked away oh. from the sunshine. Oh, the atrophy. <laughs> Ah, I'm like Grandpa George in uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Joe. One of the two. There is no, it's Grandpa Joe, right? And I remember that because I did come across a a subreddit which is entirely dedicated to hating Grandpa Joe. He was a bit of a grifter, you know? This is the whole thing. He is bedbound. Exactly. And as soon as he can get some free chocolate, boom, (laughs) straight on his feet. But these people are like really like passionately hateful towards him. <laughs> Reddit is a terrifying place. Uh, Reddit is yes, it's a hellscape. Some might say. At least it's it's finally safe to go back to Facebook now that they're shutting down Farmville. God damn! Has that been going still? Apparently. Farmville. <laughs> and do you know why it's shutting down? Actually, it's the most ridiculous reason. It's because they won't update it from Flash to HTML5. Uh, That's Zynga. Like, it's... My God. Considering that they're a game company, and it's probably been one of their biggest earners over their entire career, it's the stupidest move. I mean, they've got principles, do Zynga. You've got to admire them. Do they fuck. (laughs) They probably see it as an easy way out. You know, if they'd tried to just stop it, they'd have angry Farmville mobs burning down their Zynga mansions. So this is probably a good out for them. Well, they're still going to get the unwashed masses hating them for not updating it, aren't they? Yes, but they'll move on to something else. Is Candy Crush still going? Uh, I think so. That's like, you get Android app for that, so you're fine. Aha, see? They'll all move on to that. But anyway. But anyway. Thank God they didn't make a Farmville film. <laughs> bringing us on to our first topic. Can you imagine? So you'd think that, like, loving films and loving games, anything crossing the boundary between would be a godsend to us nerds. But no. I would have thought. Yeah. More often than not, it ends up, obviously, people that make games and people that make films tend to be in different wheelhouses altogether. Very different processes. Yes. And... <sighs> And a lot of games don't really take very well to the giving the the character a voice, you know. There's there's some most loved characters out there have never uttered a word, which allows the player to implant themselves in the place of the hero, and they're never violently shaken out of that. This is exactly it. Yeah, this is why Legend of Zelda, Mario, they could quite easily give them dialogue. Mario, not so much, because obviously he's had his cartoon shows that were loved and 
There was that movie. There was that movie. I think the worst part of that movie was the Goombas. Gigantic dinosaur freaks. Yeah. It was just horrendous. Oh. I remember I did watch it in the 90s when it was new. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it was it was just bizarre. And it was, for such a international, huge franchise as Super Mario, it just didn't seem to actually tie into Super Mario at all. It's like someone had an idea for a film, and they went to a network executive going, hmm, you know what, I don't think anyone's going to come and see this film. However, I've just been tasked with um, making a film for this game I've never heard of. Why don't you write it about this character? And for some bizarre reason, this man was never shot. <laughs> but oh, no, it was awful. Did you ever watch it? I don't know if I have, actually. Like, I've never had the opportunity, as far as I know, and I've not actively sought it out. You wouldn't, though, would you? I don't... I, I, I've... You... Growing up as a gamer, the hushed whispers of the Super Mario Brothers movie echoed the halls, um, and you, you knew about it. You didn't even have to watch it. I, I, I feel like I've seen the movie, the amount of hatred I've heard about it. Oh, it is just awful. It's interesting what you say there about just slapping the kind of license onto a pre-written movie. I've heard that said a lot about video game films. Um, like the Doom film, for instance, was basically like a crappy action film, and they went, "Hey, wait a minute! Why don't we make it about Doom? That'll sell some uh, some copies." Yeah, and the same as I think yeah. the Resident Evil film as well was a lot of these films. They've added the licensing on top to just try and shift a few more seats, um, rather than crafting a story from any sort of respect for the source material, they've taken the source material and just jammed it on top in terms of a title, which doesn't work. No, I mean, I think cinema has definitely moved away from that with the success of like the MCU. And well, what else has there been? Like, good adaptations. Um, in fact, I'll stop, I'll stop there in case I mention anything that's coming up later on. We're, we're, yes, we're, we've only got... So many topics this week. Indeed. Yeah, so things like quick cash grabs that have no longevity aren't in favour anymore. It's the big franchise that you can keep people wanting to come back for sequels. That's what that's what a lot of them are aiming towards. But it's not really working for a lot of them, unfortunately. No. Those kind of things take a lot of groundwork. I mean, it's been over a decade of the MCU. That is a hell of a lot of work. And a lot of companies are trying to just hurdle and leapfrog to the kind of end point where you've got big sort of conglomerate films all mashed together without any of the groundwork, without any of the years of planning and character preparation. And you lose a lot without that in, uh, essential work. Yeah, this, this is the problem when filmmaking is still very much a for-profit industry where writers will go to the board of directors and they'll say, I've got this idea for all these films that will eventually become this massive thing. And they'll go, hmm, we like the the last one where you plan on making a lot of money. Can you just do that one first? And that is entirely why the X-Men Days of Future Past timeline died, because they skipped about six films. 
to get <laughs> yeah. to the grand finale. Yep, they had two absolute champions and then went straight to Apocalypse. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing, Roy? What are you doing, Roy? I think a lot of it has to do with what you said as well about the difference in storytelling structure in that in a video game you almost don't want a sort of prominent main character because you want them to be adaptable you want the audience to inhabit them you want the audience to play that character as if it's them whereas in a film Dara O'Brien lovely Dara O'Brien talks about this mm-hmm. and he talks about the difference between reading a book and watching a film and playing a game and when you when you read a book or watch a film it's kind of passive entertainment. It sort of happens to you. You read it or you watch it and you go, oh, excellent, lovely. And it's secondhand. But video games are active entertainment and you are actually interacting with the world and you are making the live decisions. And that doesn't, it really doesn't transfer between the two. It very rarely succeeds. Yeah, I mean, for it to work, like, really well, you'd have to have a game that didn't really give you that much agency in the first place. Otherwise, tons and tons of filling would be lost in the translation. A game that detached from the player wouldn't be a very popular game in the first place. (laughs) Yes, it's a tricky one. Things that have worked, you look at the sort of Pokemon universe, where the games and the films almost exist separately, mainly because the the films are based on TV show, of course. Not, not really when you actually look at it. I mean, Pokemon kind of all came out at once. Like, it was all... I think the games were the starting point, but then they had the TV show and the comics that were big in Japan, and all of this all came out to try and advertise the game well yeah but what i mean is that the movies and the tv shows and the comics were all a kind of uh, a, a sort of contained storyline which was to prop up the game but it existed as its own little universe as well it was essentially the plot of the game but because the game was itself an rpg it sort of allowed for that level of storytelling and that level of characterization i think that that, that was one of the big like amazing moves they did because the game it was it was very similar, but definitely different, the story going from the game to the TV show. And then obviously they came out with um, Pokemon Yellow, which is like, ha, now you yeah. can have a Pikachu just like Ash, and it follows you around. And it was like, oh my god, this is what we were missing. That was, <laughs> that was really, in my mind, the first time I'd ever bought the same game twice, mm. just for a slight difference. That is a good example of uh, bringing elements of a TV show into a video game and not screwing the pooch. Just little elements, little tastes, little teasers, rather than trying to condense the whole thing down. A lot of, I think the problem with a lot of video games that tie into movies, what's interesting about them, I didn't know about this until a few years ago, when they're making the video game of the movie, because it's a video game, they've usually made it before the movie has even been released because of all the developmental needs and the sheer amount of time it takes to make the thing. So yes. they're almost guessing. Like, they're working they're working in coordination with the movie studio and the writers and stuff, but they're basically having to sort of preempt what's going to be in the movie 
And so there's all these like weird bits in the video game. That just don't quite add up. Because they've got to make sure it comes out during the time where the hype is there. Otherwise, they're not going to get the peak sales they want. Exactly. I remember it was it was X-Men 2, Wolverine's Revenge, the game. Oh, what a it game. It was meant to follow the exact plot of the film, but they ended up changing it so much, it just went off on its own wee tangent. And it was it had a completely different ending. It was so weird. Mm. And it's, it's quite widely regarded as an awful video game tie-in. I actually quite liked it. it. It's a good game. I thought it was a good game. And the, the stealth slaughter mechanic of you sneak up behind someone, you can just rip them in half. It was wonderfully gory to my to my teenage self. <laughs> I think, yeah, as, a, as an adaptation, it probably didn't hit the brief, but it was a very entertaining game, which I think sometimes when it's a movie adaptation, some of the best games that are based on a movie don't follow it to the letter. The problem is when they try and do a play-by-play recreation scene-by-scene of the action in the movie. But as we talked about, it's a completely different um, storytelling experience. And it doesn't translate to when you're sitting there jumping around, mashing buttons, trying to do it yourself. The pace is all different. The plot points might need to be rejiggled into a different storytelling structure. Um, to stick with Wolverine, the um, the Wolverine Origins, as um, yes. iffy as iffy as the movie was, the video game was unbelievably good. I think that the main benefit that had, um, I don't know if this is what you're going to say, but I loved how it went further back in time than the film. Yes, that whole extra African element where it kind of explored oh. the events before the movie and stuff. Oh, that was amazing. It was just so well-paced, that game. Mm-hmm. Kept you going. There was tons of action. And it managed to get, like, sort of trickle through the plot of the movie. The way that it worked, which is different to a lot of movie game tie-ins, was it It, it had all that brilliant action, and it had all these almost set pieces that were created for the game. Um, and then it just had those little cutscenes. It was like, here's a bit of plot. Here's a character doodly do, and it wasn't you weren't rigidly <laughs> like experiencing the film like some tie-in games where you might as well watch the friggin movie um you were able to go off and be really brutal like the the uh, attack mechanics in that game were incredible mm-hmm. and like the oh, sentinel yeah. fights like they were different they weren't in the movie all these kind of elements Oh, the Sentinel fight was was an amazing like um, Easter not Easter egg, but that was just mm. yeah, it's amazing for fans of the series who wanted to see a a proper Sentinel, since they they teased it in the films and they just end up with a head, and then you got the different Sentinels. It's quite outrageous. I I will on a ninety percent basis agree with you that movie tie-in games that just follow the plot are generally awful. And the massive exception to that is Lord of the Rings, Two Towers, and Return of the King. Ah, incredible Those two games are phenomenal. And all they do is just run through the plot and let you join in when there's a fight. Yes. It's, again, it's what made Wolverine Origins work. It kind of let you go. It was like, right, here's a a set piece. Go and kill some people, and we'll bring you back when it's time for another cutscene. And it wasn't 
it wasn't rigid. You know, it wasn't like you have to do this and then you have to do this. It felt like you were playing a game. It felt like you were in the movie at the same time almost. Um, mm. And I think, again, it was because it was that hack and slash uh, combat dynamic. This is the key. It works much better than, um, for instance, all that's coming to mind is the Cars movie, which was basically cutscenes and then like a racing bit, and then you had to chase some sheep. And it was just like a collection of weird racing and minigame elements with the movie playing in between. I will say, for, f- thankfully for the sake of my sanity, I have not only not played that game, I didn't even realise it was a thing. <laughs> I mean, logically, it could only have been a thing, but yeah. I have not played it. Um, I do I do recall um, an Ice Age tie-in game, oh. which was... It was just, you know, your proper, like, kiddie platformer. Um, I think mm. I was playing with my wee brother. And... One part that does stick in my head that I actually was so entertained by was um, you had to get a certain score in this bowling mini game before you could carry on, and obviously it's a you know ice age, so all the pins are penguins. Uh. So I remember you had to like you had to get a strike. So I throw the ball, I get nine, and then the last penguin standing there, he then clutches his chest because he's had a heart attack and he falls over. And I get a strike. Oh my god! So that was that was entertaining, um, and that was that's the only thing I remember being entertaining. Yeah, a few and far between are the good video game tie-ins. I remember mm. Toy Story Two had a sort <sighs> of had had a sort of quote-unquote movie game tie-in, in that the basic premise was you are Buzz Lightyear looking for Woody, but it wasn't like. It didn't follow the movie structure. It was an entirely different story. And the the game creators were able to build this incredible platforming world with all these incredible little moments of fighting and little weird enemies. And you, you were on a construction site at one point. It was oh, incredible. Oh, yeah. And they captured... That's, honest to God, one of the best games of all time, and I will fight anyone on that. The difference in in that one is they captured the spirit of the movie in that they went, what's the what what is incredible about Toy Story? These toys are alive and they're inhabiting this giant world. What would that be like? And you are playing as little Buzz Lightyear running around like a back garden, which is like to us a very safe environment, but to Buzz Lightyear as a like you know half a meter tall, I don't know heights, a small toy. <laughs> Uh, as a small toy, it's terrifying. You've got to like leap over ponds and climb fences and uh, run away from like lawnmowers and stuff. Toys must have seemed huge to you as a tiny little man. <laughs> they still do. I'm still, I'm still very <laughs> sketchy. But that, that is where they succeed when they don't, when they, when they don't follow it plot for plot, um, plot point by plot point, and they are allowed a little creative freedom. I do remember yes. as well. Um, because Disney Pixar tie-ins are always the worst for this. They're just soulless cash grabs, apart from The Incredibles movie, which... Oh, The Incredibles game was amazing. Yeah, it picked up from the end of the first one, and that was the game for the movie, and it was The Underminer. And it was like, yeah, you like Incredibles, here's a whole separate adventure. It's like, what?! That was yeah. incredible. That was a very bold move. 
I think it's that one. It's that one that starts off that you're trying. It starts off at the very start of the movie, where you're taking on Bon Voyage. I remember playing an Incredibles game where I have to fight some Frenchman. Uh, my memory of it is very spotty. He might have been in it. Maybe he came back. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I do remember uh, Monsters Inc. tie-in game. Oh, that's the other one I was thinking of. That was good. That was good. Oh. Because again, it was kind of its own little story. It didn't worry too much about following the film plot. See, this is the thing. I think what we've established from this is that games of films have the potential to be amazing because you can jump in being familiar with the world and then you're more likely to try a type of game you haven't tried before because you're familiar or you can might try different mechanics you're not familiar with you know you could end up finding a new favorite genre because you already know the the characters and the the story to an extent so you could find an absolute hidden gem mo- uh, movie tie-in game however on the other end of the scale when you go to see a film about a game you like, it's either going to be good if they've made a really good film, or it's going to be bad if they've made a crap film, or they've made a really good film that's not how you think of the game. Mm. So you've pretty much got like the worst odds of it being good. Even if it's good, it might just not speak to you in the way the game did, and it'll feel like the worst betrayal. Yep. It is a tricky, tricky business to recreate the magic of uh, of the video game experience. A good I mean, one recently. A good one recently was uh, Detective Pikachu, which um, again wasn't so much a video game adaptation in that it was just a kind of brand new story within that world, and it took all those elements that we know of Pokemon and the world, and it went, "What would it be like to just be?" you know, living in a world of Pokemon. And it was this whole other point of view to the universe. It wasn't like cartoony. It wasn't, I'm a Pokemaster. It was like a realistic story, but with Pokemon everywhere. And obviously, Ryan Reynolds. And Ryan Reynolds as Pikachu. And that's an example of of taking the source material and respecting the source material, but just kind of doing your own thing with it and not worrying about pleasing people. Because you can't please everyone. So you might as well make a good experience without worrying about hitting boxes. That's the thing. They need to focus on making good films. Yes. That would be nice. Speaking of good adaptations. <laughs> well, I just railroad us into our the meat of our podcast dinner. Yes. We've had our little amuse-bouche, and now we're into the chunky part. We've had the, the canapés. Time for the steak. <laughs> but yes, so the we'll start off positive note um, after being riled up so much. The best adaptations. Yes, I did the the introduction, so I'm going to make you do your fir- your one first. I'm nice like that. Fair enough. Fair enough. I think um, uh, long time listeners and people who know me will uh, not be surprised by my choice of best book to movie adaptation. Um, because I've chosen the Sailor Lord. Moon. Pardon me? <laughs> Sailor Moon. Sailor Moon, surely. Yeah. Outrageous. Um, I mean, that is already perfection. Uh, you mm-hmm, cannot, quite. you cannot touch, you cannot touch Sailor Moon. She's a schoolgirl. Um, oh. oh dear. 
it'll come to no no surprise of anyone that I've chosen the Lord of the Rings trilogy. <gasps> shock. I am shook. Shock, outrage, gasps emanate across the land. But yes, not, not uh, a universal opinion, though. There are people who are fervently against it. But I will definitely share the opinion of the Lord of the Rings trilogy being amazing. It is an interesting point because we are looking at it as an adaptation. And I do understand the the qualms and the questions people have with it. But I say to you, could there be a better adaptation? I think not. No, I, I, I think if they tried to add anything more from the books, it would have been too bloated. Yes. And they they had a perfect balance. I think it took people in. That This is the big thing, that people that never would have got involved with fantasy or ever reading Lord of the Rings, it has drawn them in. And I don't think I could give it a better qualifier on why it's an amazing adaptation. It came at a time as well, 2001, we just had the 80s and the 90s filled with crap, cheesy, fantasy, sci-fi, superhero malarkey, and people were like, what? Another fantasy film? Goblins? Elves? Oh, this is going to be crap, this is going to be cheesy, this is going to be snooze fest. I'm not a nerd. Dungeons and Dragons wasn't cool yet. And Peter Bloody Jackson single-handedly made Fantasy Realms awesome. He, he, he turned hobbits into oscar fodder nobody could have nobody could have seen um this coming it's it's an regardless of how enjoyable the film is the critical success that peter jackson got from these films is mind-blowing yes the, the films are just absolutely phenomenal i would quite happily at any point sit down and just watch the whole thing from start to finish and yes I do mean the extended cut. The extended trilogy Blu-ray is a perfect way to spend a rainy Saturday afternoon. <laughs> and, and evening. And, and evening. early Sunday morning. Start at sort of lunchtime, I think. I've made the mistake of trying to do uh, Lord of the Rings all-night marathon um, recently, <laughs> actually, and I, I fell asleep. It was not good. <laughs> I had to go You're and take a nap. Idea. You can't do these things anymore. <laughs> had to go and take a nap and try again in the morning. It was terrible. But yeah, I would at the drop of a hat go, yeah, let's watch the trilogy. Because you almost can't just watch one film. Recently It's very Moorish. Very Moorish. Very creamy and rich storytelling. And then they do all flow into each other, which is um not just a credit to Peter Jackson's filmmaking, but they did just make them all together. So, of course, they all flow into one another. It's not like there was a year's gap in between each film. They're literally rolling into each other with every every different take. It's like... Bruh, 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 bruh. I think it took two years to film, just as a constant process. Mm-hmm. Just incredible. And I recently, at the start of this month, I think uh, it was sort of... Last month, September, when the cinemas reopened, finally, just about to shut again, for God's sake. But they reopened, and so some genius thought, let's bring back some vintage films and get people back into the cinemas. And they had, like, The Karate Kid and Rocky and The Fellowship of the Ring Extended Edition. 
I have a mere few weeks ago sat in a cinema and watched the extended Fellowship of the Ring, and it felt like the first time seeing it. It felt like a brand new thing, like it does every time. Like every time I watch these films, it's like experiencing them again for the first time because they're so rich and beautifully orchestrated. The amount of love and passion and heart that went into these films, they're just this wonderful world that I want to inhabit. And Gimli is funny. And Gimli be funny. <laughs> Gimli do be vibing, though. Mm. <laughs> he overcame his racism. That's that's the main thing. That That is it. It's character development. It's friendship. It's against the great odds of evil at work in this world. It's just so uplifting. I It makes me feel like that excited little 12-year-old going to see them in the cinema for the first time and just losing my mind at what I was seeing. It is incredible, Peter Bleeding Jackson. I mean, I've I've always I always felt a, a kinship with with Lord of the Rings, especially since like our main friend group growing up. I mean, we've got the the dwarf that I'm speaking to just now. <laughs> Hello. We we had Dave, the blonde prancy one, <laughs> and the, the 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 dashing leader with a beard. <laughs> we um yeah we were the the trio, the badass. Orc hunting trio. Indeed, they're just to 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 have a twenty year legacy, and still some of the techniques are still groundbreaking. People are still trying to figure out, like, what the hell were they doing? You know, all the um the sort of motion capture yeah. developments and the use of miniatures and um props and prosthetics the practical effects were amazingly done oh the, the ba- counterbalance between practical and uh, computer effects was just unsurpassed in my opinion just unfriggin believable and the sheer amount of like extras that were used in these battle scenes the 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 authenticity of this work is just astronomical it blows my little mind every time. It's amazing. So, yeah. I tried to think of another, but the Lord of the Rings trilogy has such a stranglehold upon my heart. I couldn't allow <laughs> anything else to get best adaptation in my book. <laughs> oh, that's awful. <laughs> oh. So not only is it the best adaptation, but it goes the other way. It's the best friggin' game of a film as well. I will also say that um, my personal favourite Lord of the Rings game is um, The Third Age. Oh. Which tells the tale of some new characters who are basically the Fellowship of the Rings support squad who are like keeping back and stopping armies from catching up to them and fixing stuff that happened along the way. And in no way you know, mentioned in the books or films or anything. This is entirely made up for this game. But it felt slightly connected to the story while also having its own freedom and new characters. And I, I it was amazing. It's a very interesting way to do it. But again, it's taking the source material and it's taking this world that people love so much and just doing a little twist, making something new with it. Innovating. Just a little twist. A little twist. Little, little, little switcheroo, you know? We'll throw something new in there. Shake it up a bit. Bish, bash, bosh. 
cracking game. Bish bash bosh. So how about you, Sunshine? What would your best adaptation be? I have put a lot of thought into this um, as of about an hour ago. Uh, <laughs> and I'm going to say my personal favourite adaptation is the Deadpool movie. Oh, damn. Oh, damn indeed, young man. That is that is a good shout. Oh, I mean, yeah, it, they just fought for so long to have the Deadpool movie done right, and we're all so, so glad they won. Yep, Ryan Reynolds' passion project. Yes. That man, he fought tooth and nail. And to be honest, like, I've, I've read a horrendous amount of Deadpool comics. Um, compared to other heroes and other comics, Deadpool ones have been the most voluminous, and I don't think they physically could have done a better on-screen version of him. It was incredible what they pulled off. And you can tell how much of a fan Ryan Reynolds is, which helps. But also the writing team, the whole production team behind it, you can tell just how much everyone is working to make it as authentic to the source as possible because it was just beautiful like every moment of it was as if it had been ripped out the comics with that energy and with that bombast and with the most perfect mix of cheeky chappy and horrifying gore that makes him such a charming character <laughs> yes i think they, they made a much better you're not going to like me for this opinion they did a much better job of making it comic booky you know, without how 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 would I phrase this to wind you up the most? <laughs> Basically, they made it feel really comic booky without relying on you know cheap visual effects like Scott Pilgrim. Whoa! How bloody dare! Cheap, <laughs> but you, you get what I'm saying. Visual effects. Yeah, it's very easy to make it seem comic booky when there's comic book special effects flying around all over the place. True. You know, I was like, if I had like a my student project, make it seem like it's in a comic book. Kapow! That that was kind of um, the the comic books themselves were more stylized like that, like they they were almost like a video game homage to the comic books, and so the stuff in Scott Pilgrim is actually quite authentic to the source material because the source material itself was OTT and bombastic. Yes, but that's not really the point I was going for. But Deadpool feels like a visual comic. I get what you mean. It's got that kind of does. glossiness and that kind of almost um, sort of realism, but not quite. It's kind of a heightened thing. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> quite, yes. <laughs> uh, I think as well, um, they did the fourth wall breaking very well. Yes. That was one thing I wasn't sure on how that would translate, but it was just phenomenal. It can be a tricky thing. It can be quite annoying, almost. Um, we went through a patch there where almost every movie tried to be cool and edgy by having their main characters break the fourth wall. And sometimes it worked, and sometimes it was a cheesy mess. But... oh. God, yeah. Yeah, the Deadpool style really worked. I did watch very recently, as in the other day, um, Enola Holmes. Ooh, I've not seen it yet. It's actually not bad. Um, I've heard it's good fun. Henry Cavill's very good. Well, yes. I remember I started watching it, and I'd 
done my usual sort of media blackout of I've decided I'm going to watch it, so I'm not going to watch any trailers or read anything about it. And I started watching it, and about 40 to 45 minutes in, I got very, very surprised when I discovered it wasn't actually a series, but a movie. <laughs> yes. Because it felt like it was going to be a series to me. <laughs> <laughs> I th- I was under the impression it was going to be a series, and then it came on Netflix, and I was like, what? Two hours? A movie? Very good, though. I would recommend watching it if you've... Uh, you find yourself with the time. It's uh, it's on my list. When I've next got a little movie hang- uh, hankering, I'm going to stick it on. But yes, back on the topic at hand. Deadpool, I would say, definitely one of my personal favourite adaptations. Mm-hmm. The costume, the whole... Yes. The world that he inhabits, the fact that the actual kind of people are all kind of a bit more seedy and a bit more edgy and like... When he when he's dealing with like the X Men, even there, like the kind of B class, like all these little elements are like straight out of the comics, like the horrible kind of rough around the edges atmosphere. Very cool. Yes. Whereas every, everyone in Deadpool's world is trying to be serious, but it's just not going to happen because you're in Deadpool's world. Mm, poor Colossus. <laughs> he was so shiny. He's so shiny. Oh, just, uh, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I knew I was going to enjoy this movie in the opening credits, where they have, like, that slow-mo crash. Oh, my God. And there's, like, a ridiculous, like, flashing up of, I can't even remember what it was now, but I was just in stitches. I didn't even read half of them because I was laughing so much. And I had to like get the DVD and pause it every time so I could laugh at each individual one. <laughs> so good. A joke there about Colossus being entirely CGI. Yeah. Ruddy perfection. And the second one was not bad either. Well, you know what? I actually really enjoyed the second one. I didn't think I would because sequels tend to be shit. Yeah, but they did a bloody blinder. If anything, they did. ramped it all up even further. You're quite correct. I might actually go and watch Deadpool 2. Instead of doing the rest of this episode. <laughs> I think our viewers might enjoy that as well. Bye. Right, bye. Do the rest of it without me. <laughs> oh, I want to watch Deadpool 2 as well. I'm, I'm saying we should all... You, <laughs> you, me and Someone the has to stay and do the episode. Uh, but me... Me and the viewers will go watch Deadpool 2. Well, that's hardly fair. The viewers, the listeners. Viewers? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. But anyway. Wait. Quite outrageous. Will we bite the bullet and move on to the the, the the negative half? Yes. I'm never I'm never really so good at the negative half of these things because I'm Our first two episodes were about our worst things. I know, and I struggled so much because I'm generally quite a positive person. Well, I, I loved ripping the piss out of Harry Potter, so crack <laughs> on and I'll 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 take the reins. <laughs> I mean when I was younger, I was a vicious vicious man but yeah it took me a while to figure out what i thought was my worst adaptation because there are so many bad ones as a quick side note sorry i just remembered um i watched onward um very recently have you seen it yeah you remind me of the pixies (laughs) because they're so small and they're so angry (laughs) the little angry pixies (laughs) oh what are you talking you're talking to me <laughs> if anyone watching hasn't decided if they want to watch Onward yet, <laughs> it was just added recently to Disney Plus. Go watch it; it's so funny. 
So it's funny. like um, it's a coming of age story set in a post technological revolution D and D world. Yep. So it's a world of magic and centaurs and unicorns and oh my god, the unicorns! <laughs> but you know, technological progress happens, and all of us, you know, after hundreds of years, they have a very similar society to ourselves. But the entire film is so funny. It's so good. If you're in it for the fantasy, or you're in it for like the actual good story and good acting and amazing animation, you're going to have a good time watching this movie. It's one of the best Pixar films I've seen in years. Oh god, yes. Unbelievably good. And yes, if you like Dungeons and Dragons even the slightest, mm-hmm. you'll be peeing yourself laughing. I, yep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> any, any enjoyment of the fantasy genre, this is the movie for you. I mean, Ailey can't stand Dungeons and Dragons as a general rule. But now she loves gelatinous cubes. <laughs> gelatinous cubes. But anyway, I'll, I'll let you get back onto your actual topic. Yes. Well, um, as we discussed, did we discuss this while we were recording? I don't know. I was. I, I, think, I think we did. We whole... introduced the topics at the beginning. Yes. Um, the, the I had been tempted to include The Hobbit as my counterpoint worst adaptation. But no, I, I did quite enjoy The Hobbits. You know, I found them fun and I found them entertaining, but they probably wouldn't be a good adaptation, is the rule. But I, I left that. I avoided that because I didn't want to get into that. And instead, I have gone for what seems to top every single bad book-to-film adaptation list across the internet. This one was on every list. It was at the top of every list. Of course, I'm talking about the hot dumpster fire that is Eragon. <sighs> And if you're like us, you'll have made a similar reaction to that name alone. I know Dave personally hates this film with a burning passion because he actually read the books. I've not read the books, but because of Dave, I'm very aware of how bad this movie is. I haven't read the books for the sole reason of how bad the movie was. If I think if the movie did a decent job, I would have gotten right into that series. And if the movie had never been made, I probably got right into that series. But because of how bad that movie was, I just got turned off it for life. And apparently the books are amazing, which is really is why it hurts so much how bad this movie was. There, there are so many crying nerds that went to see this movie and just lost all hope in the world. Mm. It's the perfect example of the post the post Harry Potter Lord of the Rings success throughout the rest of the 2000s early 2000s um every other scheming film producer in the world wanted that they were like oh my god these kids are loving these fantasy adult young adult teenage nonsense i don't understand it but we'll take anything any book you've got we'll make it we'll make it all desperate to cash in on this new fantasy genre that was taking over the world. But what they all seemed to miss out on was that the, the reason these were thing, these two were so popular, you know, Lord of the Rings had Peter Jackson at the helm making sure everything looked amazing and felt amazing and made sense and followed the script, not script, the plot of the books. You know, things were left out, but he didn't change anything. He kept it true to the story. Harry Potter, 
like J.K. Rowling was involved in the painstaking search to make sure every single part was cast perfectly. You know, she put her foot down and demanded that Coltrane be Hagrid. <laughs> and we all thank her for that, and nothing recently. Yes, that is the last good thing she did. Um, mm. <laughs> but yeah, interesting. But they decided that these things, despite being like half the reason those f- franchises became so popular, that all this effort went in, they decided, ah, that can't be important. We'll just skip it. They basically um, made the same film over and over again with a different title each time. All of these crap 2000s fantasy epics with the same handsome blonde young actor at the helm and, I mean, a pretty impressive cast who all phone it in. John Malkovich's um, performance in this is the least charismatic, the least emotive I've ever seen the man. He's literally, he, he does a walk and he's playing the main bad guy, and he does his little menacing walk, and he says his little menacing line, but you just... It's as if he's reading it in the shower, practising on the way. He doesn't care. He's come for his paycheck, and he wants to get out there as quick as he can. Either he was contractually obliged to do this film and didn't have any passion for it, or the director kept saying to him, can you tone it down a bit? Just, you know, a bit blander. It's... Like I don't know which one would be worse. He's he's saying these things like, um, if we don't stop them, it will be the end of me. They'll kill me. But he sounds so bored all the time. He couldn't give less of a shit. And that is basically the entire tone of the film. No one gave a shit. Nobody read the book. They went, "What a kid, dragons, monsters, great, we'll make it." Um, and they 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 they've compressed this 300-page book, into an hour and a half of bullshit. And it's just... It's not even fun. It's not even bad and fun. It's boring. Nothing happens. Nothing makes sense. The lead actor, the poor, young, blonde, handsome man straight out of drama school, is crap. None of the stakes, like, none of the battles feel relevant. Like, you're not like, oh, no... This character that's just been introduced might die. No, oh, no. Like, there's not even... Even the exposition is worse than usual. Everything is crap. Cheesy, unimpressive bullshit. Even Jeremy Irons monologuing couldn't save it. Right, don't hold back. Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> I'm just like, ah. And, like, every, is, everything yeah. is written. It's like ex machina. After ex machina, something happens. The kid's in danger. Ooh, here's someone to save him. Here's a convenient plot point. Ooh, he suddenly knows all these spells, but apparently magic he is can dangerous. Explode everything. Like, and the dragon like is twice the size it was a scene ago. Like, what the hell is going on? It's not just that it doesn't make sense. It's not just that it's boring. It's that you just don't care. You don't want to invest in it. It was it was definitely paced horrendously. I think the entire thing would be much better as a TV show. Yeah, probably. It could have been a nice slow burn. Like he's got his dragon. Maybe by the end of season one, the dragon's the right size. I don't know. I haven't read the book. I don't know how fast the dragon's meant to grow. It felt a bit fast. A little bit fast. A little bit fast. 
Um, but this is what they did. They they didn't have, you know, um, the the Lord of the Rings. Peter Jackson's wife was the script supervisor, and her job was to go over and over and over the books constantly before, during, and in post production, making sure that they were doing as accurate a job as possible. So she was like tweaking lines as and when and making sure things were much more authentic. She was um, in amongst the costume department. She was working at every level, making sure that everything was to the book's specifications. But there is so many elements in Aragon where people have just gone, ah, fuck it, throw this armor on them. That That's cheap, get them to wear that. Oh, we'll go over here, it's fine. And nothing makes sense. Nothing looks like it exists in a world. There's no coherence. Nothing Nothing seems real. It seems like a half-assed B-movie at times. They spent all their money on Robert Carlyle and Jeremy Bleeding Irons. They had no money left for anything else. It still makes me sad, that movie. I, I friggin' bought it. I'd heard about it. I, I, this is what's so bad. You fool. I, so it came out, I don't know when, I was young. I think even I bought it, or it, it turned up in the house. My mum might have picked it up because she knew I liked dragons or something. And I was you like, she'll oh. She'll pick up anything. She's outrageous. Um, and I remember we have the DVD still at home. And I'm like, I've someone in my family has paid money for this. And I've watched it precisely once and I'd had enough. I remember even as a young man going, nope, that was, that was awful. I remember David actually did buy it, that poor, poor man. And I sat and watched it with him and he was so mad because he loved the book so much. I remember thinking it was awful. And then years later, it was on telly and I thought, eh, I'll, I'll give it another try. I think David must have just been really mad and that soured my impression of the movie. And I watched it again, and I think the best thing was the advert breaks. <laughs> Improved the pacing. It's, um, what's most impressive about this film is that the director, it was his first film, and he's never worked again. <laughs> this was his chance to step up and direct his first blockbuster film, and he fucked it so badly that he was blacklisted. He's never worked I again. Mean, what was his name? I didn't even want to check. I'll have a look to say. Um, gonna, uh, I just want to, to learn it, just in case he does try and make something else. Ste- Stephen, Stephen, Stephen Fangmeyer. Stephen with an F. So his name is Fangmeyer. He should have been really good at dragons. <laughs> That's how it works. God. So yeah, he's a visual effects artist, and his only director credit was Aragon. Oh no! Apparently, he's involved in something called Space Racer in pre-production. That sounds like a classic for the ages. But this is it. They basically went. This is this is what the thought process would have been. They've gone. We need a guy to direct this film about a dragon and medieval shit, and the visual effects in Lord of the Rings were really impressive. We should get a visual effects guy to direct it. That's not how it works. That's not how anything works. A visual effects supervisor in Game of Thrones. Oh my god. And Sin City, a gay dame to die, kill for. Signs. 
Saving Private Ryan. He's got a very an impressive uh, CV. In visual effects. <laughs> uh, he, he has worked on a lot of like really good movies. Small Soldiers, amazing movie. Oh, I love Small Soldiers. Jurassic Park. Holy shit. Lead, computer, lead computer graphics. graphics su- yeah, supervision. Um, and as we all know, that computer operating system is an absolute laughing stock in the IT world for being just so completely bizarre and unlike any actual computer operating system. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. So I'm not surprised that the mind that brought us Aragon also brought us that. It's just... But hey-ho. <laughs> so there we are. That is how bad it's been over a decade since he worked as a director. It's just awful. It's not even, like, campy fantasy fun. Like, you've got films like Dragonheart, which I loved as a child, where it's like Sean Connery as the last of the dragons. And... um Yes. That that's amazing. And it's like it's on the right side of cheesy. Like it's kind of silly. It's like silly fantasy. But it's also like really good as well. Like it has its moments where it's like kind of dark and you're like, holy fuck. And this is like the polar opposite where it's crap and it's not fun and none of it is entertaining. <laughs> like there's nothing about this film that is good. So that's really all you can say about it, isn't it? So there we are. I've done. I've spent yesterday and today watching YouTube videos and reading up about it and reliving the horror of Aragon. <sighs> You're welcome, rabid audience. We remember your brave sacrifice. Thank you. And now I'm going to make our audience rabid. <laughs> so when we met up uh, just before recording to discuss what we were going to do and realised that we should have coordinated this in advance rather than meeting up on the day to say what our picks were for these two topics, um, we discovered that we had the same pick for the worst ever adaptation because of course we did. Aragon is because completely it's, abysmal. It's the worst. Great minds and alike. Yes. And fools rarely differ. Oh. However, yeah, I know, fool quote, flexing. I have decided to use my part of this segment to have a personal gripe, which I'm sure Eddie would like to go on record now saying he disagrees with. I can't remember what you'd said. Oh, good. I have decided... Oh, wait, I do! Personal... Yes, it's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> please, please Karen, continue with your pitch. You're incorrect. My, my incorrectness. Your incorrectness. Allow, I will allow you to wallow in your incorrect <laughs> opinion. <laughs> my my personal pick for an abysmal, horrible, untrue to the source movie is the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. Boo! Apart from Boo Spider-Man indeed. Three, I, I accept that one. Spider-Man Three was abysmal. Um, I don't know. I I grew up with Spider-Man. I remember watching Spider-Man. the the '60s Spider-Man um, <laughs> TV shows and the movies. Yeah, the old movies. I thought they were amazing. I remember being mildly entertained by the first of the Sam Raimi ones. Raimi getting very confused why the webs were coming out of his wrist instead of web canisters, like every other iteration of Spider-Man up till that point. 
Yes. I remember being very confused by why his suit was so lumpy <laughs> with the raised web. I found the, the, the differences too stark and, I don't know, I just couldn't enjoy it as much. That was my personal gripes with it as a young Spider-Man fan. I mean, at this point, I had put many horrendous amounts of hours into Spider-Man consumption. The PS1 games were phenomenal. Oh my. Trying to remember if they came out before the Sam Raimi films. So I, I will let you try and argue for a wee while while I um, do some research. Well, um, I admit that they are very different. I think Sam Raimi definitely tried to put his own little twist. He wanted to make it more of a kind of creature feature, which is his kind of thing. He's done a lot of, you know, B-movie, low-budget horror kind of stuff. The the webs from the wrist thing was definitely a bold move. No other iteration has had Spider-Man actually shoot webs from his own body. I think a couple of comics have done that in retrospect. Oh. Uh, but it's sort of come from that movie. Like every other visual medium, visual source in the in the in the Spider-Man universe. It's he's that's the point. He's made the web. Because he's a scientific dude. Yeah, because he's a genius. And there, there was a li- there was very little of that. There was very little of Peter Parker as a character. It was mostly, ah, oh, he's got spider powers. And not, you know, he's also a bit of a genius and could be pretty good without the powers. They didn't really focus on that element of the character. And the lumpy suit was weird. It was weird. The ni- the nineties in general was weird. I think it was um, it was a strange time. That that came out in two thousand and two. What? Oh my god, I always thought it was like a 90s film, the first it one. It was, which is why it's abysmal it came out in 2002. <laughs> the Spider-Man PS1 game that I was in love with uh, came out in 2000, so I had to put an obscene amount of hours into it before seeing that movie. Yes. Yeah, I don't know. I thought Willem Dafoe was good. quite enjoy him, generally, when he's in movies. He does a good job. I think a lot of the character acting as well in throughout the films was a bit jarring on occasion. It definitely had um, its own They were a bit of, wooden. Yeah, it had its own kind of tone. Shitness. <laughs> but, yeah, it is weird. They They were almost like caricatures rather than characters. Apart from J. Jonah Jameson, who was such a good... Um, oh, no. I, I will concede that J.K. Simmons, J.K. Simmons <laughs> as J. Jonah Jameson was perfection. J.K. Simmons was such a good J. Jonah Jameson that he was in two separate Spider-Man universes. Yes. <laughs> he, he was he was brought back for the MCU. Mm-hmm. There is also rumour, I don't know if you've heard, of um, Jamie Foxx coming back as Electro. I have heard this rumour, yes. But is this, is this, this is Spider-Verse rather than live action? Oh, that's cool. Love to see that, that makes sense. I just watched uh, Into the Spider-Verse again the other night. What a film! It is amazing. Because I'd only seen it the once. I saw it, I took my little brother to see it and it was mind-blowing. And I put it on again, and I was like, oh my god! It's so overwhelmingly good. Stylistically, like the animation. There's so much I didn't notice the first time, like so many little stylistic things. It's very cool. Mm. But yeah, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man is a questionable period. I really enjoy the first two films. I find them 
very entertaining. Um, the second one especially, I love um, Alfred Molina as Doc Ock. I think the whole... Oh, no, 100%. Oh, I did quite enjoy him as Doc Ock. He was incredible. I quite enjoyed the kind of heightened, stylized technique, like which was Sam Raimi's kind of um, signature, almost, like making it kind of not realistic and having everyone be kind of, you know, melodramatic and bombastic. I found that really entertaining as a kid. Watching them now, I do kind of get what you mean, that they are dated. <laughs> I, I, I found the, the melodramatic bombasticness a bit too jarring as a child watching it, because uh, my experience with Spider-Man movies was a bit more played straight. Yeah, you know, there were actual serious crime going on, and you know these gangsters have stolen a nuke and they're going to kill lots of people. Um, I need to actually find a copy of that movie at one point. It it was weird, but yeah, it just felt I don't know. It just felt like a bad Disney Channel teen live action show version of Spider Man. Ooh, harsh words. Harsh words, and I will I will stand by them. And I I feel somewhat justified by how absolutely rabid some of the the fans of that trilogy are now. It does have quite a dedicated fan base, the Sam Raimi yes. trilogy. Yes, very toxically dedicated, some of them. Spider-Man 2 is possibly my favourite Spider-Man movie still, even though Tom Holland... Tom Holland is probably the best Spider-Man. Yes, personally, I, I agree with that. I think heads and shoulders above the other two. What I've always said is Andrew Garfield was a really good Spider-Man and that he had the banter and he had the quips. Oh my god, when he was like antagonizing the bad guys, I was loving it. Yeah, and that's, that's another thing that was really missing from the Sam Raimi movies. Yeah. You know, that, that That's Peter Parker's greatest weapon in a fight, is his ability to just absolutely put every villain off their game. <laughs> yes. And, yeah, and Tommy Maguire did a really good Peter Parker. He was a great Peter Parker. I mean, that, that that was the main thing I had an issue with when I started watching the Garfield ones. Is that you look at him and you go, "There is no man, and there's no way a man that pretty would have been unpopular in high school." <laughs> I think they painted the Amazing Spider-Man as more of like an outsider, like he wasn't unpopular, but he was kind of like a bit weird and a bit edgy. They tried to paint him as more of like a James Dean kind of rebel without a cause, like, oh, he's just a loser, you know? He's a weird kid. Not yeah, not but... like Peter Parker, where he's, you know, a full-on nerd and gets bullied. I think the Garfield Peter Parker was more just, oh, he's he's such a learner, he's so weird, but it was, like, romantic, you know? I, I, didn't, I didn't really like that. Skateboarding around the place. Oh, this bloody skateboard. That the Garfield Spider-Man was more like any other kind of teen drama, and he was he was like a kind of pretty just out. I'm no one understands me because I'm a teenager and I'm also a superhero, and it's like okay, okay, Garfield. Yeah, but he could do the quips. Yeah, when he was Spider-Man, he had the banter, mm. and now think, Tom Holland, Holland has, has the, the perfect mix. Oh my god, he's incredible because he does look like. The sort of kid that would have been picked on by the jocks at school. He's like a total dweeb. He looks like a dweeb. He's a theatre kid in real life, obviously. He's an actor. Mm. But, um... <laughs> and when he's Spider-Man, he is literally the motor mouth. 
like there's that little element of kind of dorkiness underneath it all as well and he's like making fun of folk and it's almost like the spider-man suit is like a reassurance for him and he puts it on and he's like hey take it to do like making fun of them all and uh but not in like the garfield one was always a bit cocky as well like spider mm. spider-man should be kind of endearingly annoying whereas andrew garfield i think had the quips but he was still I, I, i'd argue that i think i think the cockiness is a major part of it because that's what makes the the villains overconfident they think oh this cocky kid i'll show him a thing or two yeah, but... but it, it, it always comes down to the actual depiction, though, doesn't it? True. It all has to tie in together. You can't just have him just going around just making fun of people and not having the rest of the the arsenal behind him. The, um, the Garfield series as well, I think, was unfortunate because it was basically just Sony going, ah, crap, we've got to do another set because if we don't, the rights will revert. So it wasn't... Yeah, it had that kind of drama on it as well. It wasn't, it wasn't somebody going, "I've got a great idea for a Spider-Man film," and the studio going, "Oh, that's cool, do that." It was Sony going, "Crap, we need to make a new one, or Marvel gets it back," and so they just made a new one. And it was like, "Why are you making a new one?" The second one, especially the the second Amazing Spider-Man, is a mess oh, in ev- really in is. every way that Spider-Man three. Sam Raimi was a convoluted pile of crap. Amazing Spider-Man 2 was as convoluted, but even less enjoyable. Like, there was less of a shit. At least Sam Raimi was trying to make a good film. Amazing Spider-Man 2 is just messy and just rambling. And there's no heart to it. There's no charm. It was just incoherent. Yeah. There's just scene, scene, scene. And, like... Norman Osborn turns up suddenly and uh, Peter Parker's like, oh, you're my best friend. It's like, where have you come from? What? What is this? None of it made sense. None of the characters were believable. The only good bit was, um, what's she called? Gwen Stacy's death scene was incredible. That was superb. When they pulled that off, like frame for frame from the comics, it was like, oh my God. But again, it was good. Because they stuck to the source material and they paid a proper homage. Yes, it was beautifully done. Electro wasn't in green and yellow spandex and that was universally hated. (laughs) However, going back to the PS1 games, in Spider-Man 2, Enter Electro for the PS1, his end game is this machinery that can make him turn into pure electricity. And I found it very reminiscent of that, so I enjoyed it for that particular Um, fond memories. God, I loved those games. <laughs> so, so I remember that the code to, to unlock all the suits in one of them was oh, Eel Nats. Eel Nats? Yeah, Stan Lee backwards. Oh. Uh... I didn't realise that until many years later. <laughs> you were like, what are these Eel Nats? What have they got to do? Oh. But yes. One of one of the things, one of the main reasons the, the, uh, the, the Sam Raimi trilogy is so good is that it gave us the Spider-Man 2 game of the movie. Now, the Spider-Man 1 and 2 movie tie-in games were amazing. I've not played 1, I've only played 2. 1 was was very good, actually. It's why for the longest time I actually had fond memories of the movie. Uh... Because I saw the movie a couple of times, I played the game significantly more, and it was more the game I'd think of. Um, but the Spider-Man 2 game was phenomenal as well. Oh my god, it just... 
the experience of swinging around New York as Spider-Man. I played that game to death. So very entertaining. Again, that one was very disconnected from the plot of the movie, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. It had almost nothing. Like, the the sort of overarching plot was Doc Ock is trying to do some stuff, but there were so many extra things that bumped it out. Like, there was a whole subplot with Black Cat and Kingpin, and there was all that stuff with Mysterio, and it felt like a real universe with loads of stuff going on all at once. And also, the film plot. I've just realised, you won't have played Spider-Man PS4. No. It is like the Spider-Man 2 game on steroids. I. This is what I've been told. I really. This is like the main game I want to play from the new generation. I saw a wonderful video, a wonderful video on YouTube, where the guy, the programmer, that came up with Spider-Man 2's web-swinging because um, it was different to Spider-Man 1 for whatever reason. They had some way of like programming it to attach to the buildings rather than something else. Basically, the guy that created that, they invited him to come and play Spider-Man PS4, which is like the exact mm-hmm. same mechanism. They basically reworked it into the new generation. And he's sitting there. It's the most wholesome video. He's sitting there playing it like, oh my god! I never thought I'd see the day. Look at it. Look at this city. And he's like he's like a child on Christmas Day seeing his Aww. creation brought into the new generation and it's it's beautiful. Very very wholesome content. I'll need to I'll need to try and get a watch of that. So basically, um delightful badger shelf listeners, I need to get a PS5 so I can play Spider-Man PS4. And also the Miles Morales Spider-Man that's coming out for PS5. Well, that's I think is it not one big special special edition that is Miles Morales and PS5 PS4 version remastered. Is that what it is? I keep hearing different uh, different answers. Like some, there's not been a clear like take from Sony that it's going to be. That would make sense if they're going to remaster it and then have the Miles Morales section. As well, that would be cool. I'm going to do some quick research just now. Um, because yeah, almost everyone I know with a PS4 counts Spider-Man PS4 as the game of the console. It was definitely they're they're not going to come up with a better PS4 game. No, like that is the game to play. And I've I've come close to buying a PS4 several times because people have told me about Spider-Man over and over again, and I'm like, God damn! But I have resisted, and I'm going to get a PS5 eventually, and rejoice. A good take. The Sam Raimi ones are very divisive. Oh, they are. But again, the the Sam Raimi fans really annoyed me during the run of the PS4 Spider-Man game, because they were just rabidly going after the developers, demanding they put the Sam Raimi suit in as an optional extra. Oh... And they eventually did. And now, with the, the remastered version of Spider-Man, they've recast the, the face actor the, the, for the motion capture, and people have been sending develop, the developers death threats. Whoa. Some of these fans that go too far, they get a wee bit of encouragement, and they ruin it for everyone. Yeah. Any of these fan bases which become toxic are not fun anymore. Hmm. Talking to you, Badgerites. You watch yourself. No, the toxic Badgerers are just Dave. <laughs> the single toxic heart of the Badger Shelf community. Also Ken that's mean to us when I'm late for editing episodes. Yeah, shut up, Ken. 
punctuality yeah, in my ass. Don't ask him to puncture your arse. That's a that's an entirely different uh, setup. So that's for our, our new podcast, Badger Shelf After Dark. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll get a TV show where after the podcast comes out, they sit and talk about it. That's the dream. <laughs> oh God! Like the Talking Dead. I love it. We can have a bunch of celebs come on and go. Oh my God! Great episode when they talked about Sam Raimi. Oh, I'm living for it. They'll call it Badger Shelf on the set. Oh, 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 oh. oh, dear. <laughs> oh finally, finally, six episodes in, and I've got a new Badger pun. Uh, well, before we move on to the third and final segment of this thing, remember to get in touch. We've had quite a divisive episode so far. We want to hear from you. We have a Facebook page, The Badger Shelf. We've got a Twitter as well, if you want to be a tweet. A twit and tweet us. Um, just get in touch, because apparently interaction is a good thing on the internet. So let us know. We have a Discord. We also have a Discord. <laughs> um, where we take most of our suggestions for new episodes. So if you'd like to hear something better from us, and you haven't joined the Discord, you only have yourself to blame. How... And we're going to blame you too, because that's much better than taking responsibility for making shit content. <laughs> how how would someone find the Discord? Is it just do you just search? I have I I posted it in the link to join the Discord in the episode description of episode five, and I can do it again. I'll do it again, damn you! Yes, basically, come and find us on social medias and have a chat. We're lovely. We're very nice boys. When we're not yeah. yelling at Dave. Oh, Dave. So yes, the third chunky chunk of this episode uh, is concerning Young Master Jams's question, which is about our own dream film, TV show, novel adaptation, um, which is quite exciting. I've had I've had a lot of thought on this particular topic. And I think I spent five minutes before this episode putting my notes together because I forgot. <laughs> oh no! So I'm going to let you go first. Oh no! Okay. Um. So, uh, when I was a horrible youth, I used to read a lot. I don't really read anymore. There's too many other things to do. But when I was a kid, you couldn't stop me from reading. Um. It was outrageous. And so, for that reason, I've got a lot of books that I would love to see adapted that haven't yet been made into a crap film. And eventually, I decided upon a really good film called Shades Children by an author called Garth Nix, who has done a lot of stuff in the kind of fantasy, sort of young adult genre, but not specifically like... Like, it's not Vampire Academy, it's not teenagers being teenagers, but they are like, you know, young people on a quest kind of thing. But it's mostly just good fantasy. Um, and Shade's Children is a kind of, like, futuristic, apocalyptic world. And um, what I've done, I didn't really know how to present this, so I've basically copied a synopsis from uh, fantasyfiction.com that I found. So I'm going to read that out. Do we think that's good content? Well, someone's content. <laughs> Thank you, fantasyfiction.com. In the near future... Not, we are not sponsored by fantasyfiction.com. <laughs> yeah, we are not, but we'd love to be. Um, basically, I, I'll read this out so you can get an idea 
of what the book's about. It's very entertaining. I won't interrupt this time. Thank you. In the near future, a cataclysmic change made everyone over the age of 14 disappear. The children have been captured and they live very short lives in dormitories. On their 14th birthdays, the overlords who rule the earth come and take them away to become part of the Meat Factory, a parts department for their fighting creatures, which consist of screamers, trackers, wingers, myrmidons and ferrets. Every one of these monsters is engineered, part magical, part machine, and part human. The overlords use these creatures to fight battles in some sort of elaborate sporting event, uh, eventually winning a trophy to the winning overlord. Um, the book plunges straight into the action as we follow Goldeye, a 15-year-old who has escaped the dorm and is on the run. He's about to be captured by Myrmidons when a group of older children rescue him, and they take him to Shade, the only adult left on Earth if you can call him that, because Shade is not a human being, but a computer-constructed personality. He provides shelter and training for the children who find their way to him, and he has been studying the overlords and their creations since the change happened. So that's basically a rough kind of synopsis without giving too much away. I, I got this book for free many, many years ago as part of World Book Day, um, and just became obsessed. You know, I'd bought other books... And I got this one free as part of a promotion. And I don't remember what other books I bought, but I still remember reading this one over and over again because it was kind of gritty and it was a very dark world and a very um, kind of descriptive world building and a horrifying concept that these children were kind of taken away and ripped apart and turned into really horrifying beasts. The descriptions are incredible. I mean... All I've ever heard of this is what you have just told me, and I would go watch that movie. This is what I mean. Like no one, well, you're an adaptation. No one. It's it. It's um. It's not famous enough that anyone's tried to do it, but it's well known enough that it's like a cult classic. So it has got a beloved following. It came out in 1997. It's vintage, but I only got it in like. I don't know, 2004, 2005, probably. I thought you didn't learn to read until 2006. Well, I guessed for the first few years. and uh... <laughs> You went back and read it at the age of 25, and oh my god, this is nothing like what I thought it was. I had a whole different world in my head, so it was quite eye-opening when I finally learned how to read. I think it would work better as a TV show. Hmm. I'm definitely of the opinion that books should become TV shows rather than films on the majority of cases, especially one as kind of character and world-building focused as this one. I don't think a movie, even though it's quite a short book, as novels go, I think it would be better as like a short series to give it enough flesh, because there's not a huge amount that happens. It is, I can't remember how many pages, but there are these different occasions where they go out into the world and there's like interactions with the different monsters and some of the scenes are very intense. Like, all the different monsters do different things. So there's, like, the flying ones, and there's trackers, which are kind of, like, weird zombies. And then there's these ferrets, which, like, sniff them out. They're, like, hunting dogs. And so basically their job is to, like, hunt people down and find the lost children, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's proper grim. It's, um, it is, I suppose, like a lot of different types of science fiction all merged together. There's a kind of bit of, like... There's a bit of the Matrix to it. There's a bit of kind of um, zombie movie kind of aspect to it. There's all sorts of weird dystopian things 
interacting. But mm. what what is quite interesting is the heart of it is these kind of four children, not children, like teenagers, 14, 15, 16, who've found each other and they're being raised almost by this kind of surrogate computer father who, um, and it's a classic thing where he's sort of trying to be the father figure and he's trying to teach them and educate them. But over time through the book, there's a very clever like narrative structure where every so often there's like a little section where it's him reading back over like a, a log um, or like a kind of backstory type thing. And it's him kind of checking over his notes and it sort of gets revealed that he's a bit of a dodgy character himself and he's got his own ulterior motives. Oh no. Um, and he's kind of using these kids. Like there's, they talk about kids that have gone missing and stuff. And he's like, yes, they were, they were lost in the line of duty. It's a real shame, but he refers to them as like necessary sacrifices and all this. So even like their father, so, so to speak, is like a monster. Hmm. And it's an interesting dynamic having these kind of young protagonists trapped together in this horrifying world. And it kind of deals with like human nature and sort of teenage intimacy and like these weird kind of emotions that they wouldn't have had because they've not had parents. They've not had, they've never had like friendships and relationships and things. But now that they're free to, so to speak, in this kind of matrix like world they're kind of able to explore these emotions and uh, kind of figure out what it means to be human so there's some there's some there's some saucy romance in amongst the horrifying mutant action some saucy mutant action and all, all the kids they all have different powers so like with the change um the, you never get told what the change is really it's just these weird overlords that are like aliens or something or it's like a different dimension but all the kids when they turn 14, they basically get taken away. But if they don't, so these ones, they've developed these powers. So one of them's like got telekinesis and one of them can like manifest something. So she like thinks of a grenade and she's got a grenade in her hand and stuff like that. One of them can see into the future, etc. So there's so many little elements working within this story that would make it very interesting to explore in a kind of long-form visual medium, please. That sounds really good. I'm going to have to actually get my hands on this book because I'm actually really intrigued. I bloody love it. Um, I would recommend it to anyone to read. It is a very a lovely, short little fantasy novel. I've got a copy somewhere. I think it's in Inverness. I'd lend it to you. But it's great. I'll it's go like... break into your parents' house. Yeah. I'll let them know. I'll tell them to throw it out the door. I'll keep two metres apart. It's kind of like high sci-fi, but not too hoity-toity like it's you don't really you don't really have to understand anything it's not too fancy it's kind of easy to follow the world hmm. but yeah i the fact that it's been around since 1997 and no one has even tried to make an adaptation of it i feel like the time is right well that's fine the badger shelf shall produce direct and fuck it star in <laughs> the adaptation because there's so much um potential for like weird cronenberg-esque physical um effects like prosthetics and bringing these weird monsters to life it's just incredible you need to read the book it's so kind of bleak and horrifying in its descriptions it's an unforgiving world it's incredible it would have the whole kind of sort of horror thriller-esque vibe kind of like um 
I mean, I don't want to lean on The Walking Dead too much. It's kind of like that, where it's like a horrific future, but mm, it's probably the closest uh, reference. I mean, it sounds very uh, Maze Runner-y as well. I think Maze Runner definitely took some yes. concept from it. The kind of teenagers in a post-apocalyptic wasteland yeah. and the Hunger Games and all these things. It all, it all reverberates. It all goes round and round, you know? Indeed. But it's great. It's got all these like really dark set pieces that could be amazing on the screen. <laughs> so yes, I've done a little... I did a little research into that one. <laughs> yes, you've done significantly more than I have. I have seven words. Is it, is it, is it time for me to... I think I unleash my pitch. I think I've spoken at length. You, you take it away, sir. Fan Dabby Dozy. The intellectual property that I would absolutely love to see adapted, not into a film though, into a game. Ooh. Now this is a a web comic, is how it describes itself, but it's not quite. It is called The Apocalypse. Oh my god. Yes. I have have you have you read this at all? You have shown this to me. Now I I stopped reading this ten years ago and when I was thinking about what would I love to see, what's got such untapped potential, I don't know why, but it sprung to my mind. So I went back to the website and not only am I delighted to discover that the website is still there after ten years, is it ten years? Hold on. No, I think it is five years. I do apologise. Since I it started ten years ago in 2010, and I stopped reading it in 2015. But it has been ongoing. It is still updating to this day. I have five years worth of content to absorb. I'm just on the website now, and a wave of nostalgia has washed over mm-hmm. me. Oh my god, this this thing. It's amazing. So the basic premise, it is... Uh, sort of 3D 8-bit animated comic, sort of isometric view. But the the actual story is there has been the zombie apocalypse has kicked off, as well as the robots rising up, as well as (laughs) Day of the Triffids, as well as the vampires have decided just to absolutely wipe out everyone left. So there is not a apocalypse... It's all of them, so it's the apocalypse. <laughs> um, I remember I just started reading it because I found that name so entertaining. Um, and my god, it is just phenomenal. It's so very well done. Oh, it is. It is. And so when I was having a look at it back again today, um, in the literal minutes before we started recording, I love that the new uh, chapters that have come out this year, the art style hasn't changed. He has been completely consistent. Oh my god. The characters characters from the start are still in it, but it does look like things have progressed. So I'm going to have to sit and actually read through this again. But I think the game that they could make from this universe would be amazing. It's just such a rich potential for uh, fun and chaos. Indeed. I'm ha- having a look at his um, his website, and it does appear that the man Joe does make games oh. in the same, and a lot of them in the same art style as the Apocalypse. That's pretty cool. I need to have a wee look. He has made a game called the Apocalypse Defense. Oh, I remember playing that. But I imagine a full scale mass RPG game. Where you have to like explore the world and 
find out what you're going to do. You have to fight some plants, fight some robots, and possibly other humans. Dun dun dun. Oh my. But yes, I don't know why that was the first one that popped to my head, and I just got very excited about getting back into that world. So yeah, the apocalypse. Significantly less to talk about with it than than Eddie's, but I stand by it. It's incredible. I used to read this every friggin' day. So, so yeah, I'm good. I'm definitely gonna go back into that. I've just watched the uh, first episode while we were discussing it, and it is it's just it is like playing a game, but it's also a comic at the same time. Very clever mm. when he came up with this. I've just discovered that um, the Apocalypse Defense Two is going to feature an enormous explorable city map, RPG, and tower defense elements, and a full immersive story. So mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> The adaptation I wanted is happening. This is what we want. I will say that the adaptation that we really want now is a proper arrogant movie. Yes. They, if they re, if they redid it as a TV show in the style of Game of Thrones, The Witcher, all this that's going on just now, long-form series work will almost always be better than a film. Nine times out of ten. Mm. For storytelling. I would agree. I would agree most of the time. Most scriptwriters that talk about it say that as well. They much prefer getting a gig on a series than just writing a film. Like, it's much more interesting for them as writers telling a story to work long form over a series rather than just a standalone film. I'm so glad The Witcher wasn't a movie. Oh, my God. It would have been crap. Can you imagine? The audacity. Like, the richness of that and there's like, what, 10 episodes? And they cover so mm. much. Oh, oh, it's such dense storytelling. I think what should happen is that anytime someone makes a film or a TV show that is universally agreed as being awful, the intellectual property should be surrendered to the badger shelf where we decide what needs to happen with it. Yes, we must make the final call. We'll get the rights to uh, <laughs> Erigan to Alex Ryder. What else was absolutely... Oh, we'll get the rights to Mario movies. Mm, Mario movies. Because since Nintendo hasn't been keen on anyone actually doing anything with it because of how bad that one was. Yeah. I always hear from the internet about the Percy Jackson books because the film was very bad. But apparently the book universe is amazing. So, mm. that... It, it, it has a lot of... Um... Acclaim, international acclaim. Like, people love it, and the film was awful. So, again, make a TV show. Get Netflix on the job. It should just all be made by Netflix. Get them to greenlight it. Yes, Netflix should make all of these things and the Badger Shelf talk show. <laughs> yes, it's like line one in our contract with Netflix. We will assist you in making good content. As long as we are part of the content. <laughs> However, we also hide that clause many other times within the contract. So however many times they try and take it out, there'll always be one that slips through the cracks. <laughs> like a sneaky underground badger. <laughs> Netflix is our set now. <laughs> oh dear. Oh dear. Have you finished The Mandalorian? Oh, would you look at the time. Andrew McLeod! <laughs> Honestly, it's so good. The second season oh, is I coming. I do need to. 
Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll finish watching it before the second season comes out and then I can watch it episodically. Yes, that's what I'm going to do because I now have Disney Plus. I'm going to watch it one at a time. Yeah. Well, I I assume I'll have to because that's the same. It came out one at a time in America and then I just, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just going to come out one at a time. You, you won't have an option. Last time I just let it build up and then watched it all. So I was a naughty boy. I just couldn't wait. I couldn't wait. So good. You're a monster. I might rewatch it with the lovely Disney Plus HD no virus aspect <laughs> before before yes. the new one. We should do a watch along. We'll watch it together and record our reactions. Oh, now we've done that already. People, uh, people, nobody seemed to actually like them. They they didn't. Uh, <laughs> I think they just like us talking. Yes, I think. Um, yeah. But anyway, we have any uh, honourable mentions for adaptations before we call a close? Mm, there's so many that are just bad. An interesting one to round things off in terms of film versus series is um, the a series of unfortunate events universe. Oh yes, because while the I love the books, those books. I, I read them again and again growing up. They are one of my favourite series. And while I didn't hate the film, I think it unfortunately just fell prey to the climate at the time where they were just adapting anything they could into a film with a big budget star to make money. And Jim Carrey, bless him, put in a blinder of a performance. But the people making the film just dropped the ball. The The plot went a bit wobbly and the script was kind of nonsensical and it was a less than satisfying version of the story. It was fine. It was entertaining. Wrap it all up in one film. This is it. They did three books at once into a kind of weird agglomeration and it was all right. It was fine. I quite enjoyed the film, but it was... It had a, it had a very bad film tie-in game. It, all the things, all the boxes were ticked. But then, three years ago, I think, Netflix did a TV series of it. And it was unbelievable. It was the it was spot on tone-wise. The visuals were incredible. Count Olaf, played by Neil Patrick Harris, was unbelievable. And it was everything I dreamed of. And it delivered. it delivered in every way the film did not. Because it allowed itself the time. I think half a season was a book. So each book got like six episodes. So that so it was properly allowed to like explore each story and develop these characters. And it had breathing room. It felt like a world was being constructed rather than a car was being driven down a road to an end. Like it didn't feel rushed, you know? It wasn't racing to get anywhere. It was enjoying itself. And that yes. that is a big example of the argument between film adaptations and TV series adaptations. There we are. Well, that was an <laughs> unexpected rant. I went off on one. I love a series of unfortunate events. It was very good. Thank you. Very good. Thank you very much. I used to love the books. Mm. If you haven't seen the series, I very I highly recommend it. It's just wonderful. I, I did think I did start watching it. I thought, hmm, I'm going to wait and tank this when I've got some time. Like, and little did I know, I'd never have time again. <laughs> time is... I used to have time. What happened to time? 
Then I started doing a podcast. God damn. Doing all the editing. It is quite unreal. But um, while Andrew is editing this latest masterpiece, remember, do get in touch. We want to hear from you. Um, of course, you won't hear this until he has done the editing, but pretend that you're getting in touch now and it's all happening in real life time and it'll be a fun little game for you. God, we've got worse pacing than some of these ad- adaptations. <laughs> dear, oh dear. So in summary of what we've learned tonight, Ken is mean for rushing us. Yep. Adaptations are a tricky field at best. Oh boy. And uh, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films were overrated. Okay. <laughs> oh. We'll get we'll get back to this. I expect severe retribution for that particular opinion. <laughs> severe comments on all our social media profiles. Yes, that is very correct. Facebook, Twitter, Discord, Tinder. You'll YouTube. find us all over the place. We're not yes. we're not actually on Tinder. No, not yet. Should we? Should we like match with people and say check out our podcast and then <laughs> unmatch them? I think uh, people might get the wrong idea. Oh my. I'm willing to put take one for the team. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Oh well. So yes, the badger shelf on Facebook, Twitter, Discord, and coming soon to Tinder. Coming soon. Oh no. Ah! <laughs> anyway. Ah! I think that's a good place think... to, to end the episode, don't you? <laughs> I couldn't have said it better myself. Mm. So yes, <laughs> that has been our our take on adaptations. And yeah, like, like Eddie says, get in touch. Let us know if you agree, if you disagree, or if you th- can think of one that we haven't mentioned that is also awful. We're amazing. Or it was just so indifferent that no one ever remembers it. Just get in touch. You know, we like to pretend that we know what we're doing, but we're not experts. No. You guys are the real stars. Exactly. Just uh, get in touch and have a chat. Couldn't have said it better myself. Well, everyone, thank you very much. Couldn't have said it better myself. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> As always, thank you very much for listening. I have been Andrew, and that has been Eddie. Yay. And this has been The Badger Shelf. Bye. Bye.